Hello and welcome to episode 385 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you in different locations tonight. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion Storm. And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. It's the Alex Bannister edition. <laughs> you bet it is. I think Mike Pritchard as well was also number 85. But somehow Alex like Bannister the, is the, the Alex most Bannister is seared into my mind, number 85. <laughs> there you go. It's don't worry. I was a little bit late to get this set up because Baby Fantasy Genius uh, was finishing up his PowerPoint on the University of Washington football team. Oh, I saw an early draft of this. 2012 on for some reason. An unnecessarily and detailed recap. Due at 11:59 p.m., he'd made his way to 2018. Still has 19, 20, 21, 22, possibly 23 to go. I personally would cover the 23 season, but that's just me. And I explained to him. PowerPoints are meant to convey just nuggets of information, not yeah. super in-depth information, just bullet points, high-level stuff. Let me read to you 2018. <laughs> oh, no. I, I, after I explained this to him, he cried about losing his precious words. And I was like, I read the prompt and it was like, pick five things about the subject that you've chosen. I was like, five moments, Husky football, 2012 on. Nope, not that. 2018. This is spoken Two, like a true writer. 2018, a 10 and 4 conference championship Husky team, a Apple Cup upset, and one of the worst tw- Pac 12 conferences in history. The Dogs started off the season with a close game against ninth ranked Auburn in the Chick fil A kickoff game. Ranked sixth of the time, this game could have been as an upset, but the Auburn Tigers were a powerhouse that season. The Huskies faced little challenge with a win against ranked BYU until the great rivalry against Oregon. An overtime master, this keeps going. This is a PowerPoint, mind you. An overtime masterpiece led the Huskies to fall just a bit short, but they put up a great fight. And I don't even, do not remember that game at all. An oh, upset that's the loss. Peyton Henry game. You don't remember that game? I mean, it's not, you know, now last oh. year was the Peyton Henry game, but you know what I'm saying. An upset loss to Cal, again, this keeps going, in a slugfest led the Huskies to two regular season losses. Another rival, Washington State, was a ranked team and a Pac-12 championship favorite. The Dogs went to Pullman just to ruin the hopes and dreams of a team with a dominant season to that point. The Huskies' defense shut down a hopeless Utah team, punching the Huskies' ticket to the acclaimed Rose Bowl game. Oh, I claimed the Rose Bowl game. Playing game day against six-ranked Ohio State and the fearsome Bosa brothers, the dogs were not blown out, but they could not quite conquer the Ohio State Buckeyes. Senior Browning, no mention of Jake before then, <laughs> Senior Browning had a great final season, cornered Byron Murphy, leaving to be an Arizona Cardinal. Imagine reading this to a class of sixth graders who have <laughs> no idea what the fuck you're talking about. And this is the, like, tenth slide that you've already been through the same amount of information. 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. By the time you get to 2018 and find out about the Bosa brothers, that's when it gets compelling. Was Chris, P- Chris Peterson not kneeling against Arizona? Granted, not a situation where they could have entirely drained the clock necessarily. A la Mario Cristobal. 
mentioned in the 2014. I, honestly, I read the first sentence and I'm like, I just, I am good. <laughs> the other thing, I can't even as a person who was there and witnessed every single one of these games, I still cannot hear all of this information. All that detail and no mention of the Pelton Cast emergency pod after Jake Browning got pulled for two series in the Cal that game. That was the Cal Jake game. Hader oh my god! The, I forgot was it a pick six or yeah? Just he, no, he threw a, he, he threw a pick six right away. Jake Browning did nothing wrong. Hey, Jake Hayner did nothing wrong. We just also didn't know true. yet. Well, Jake Hayner did, did some PhD. He shouldn't wrong. have been in the game. That's what we said. I, That's what yeah, we said. No. I remember that emergency pod. I was sitting in this very spot. <laughs> and I remember you and I were actually both here, right? We yeah, recorded I it in my basement person. together. Yeah. I distinctly remember saying that it wasn't Jake Hayner's fault. He just should not have been in the game at the time. Correct. I like that we're relitigating this now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the PowerPoint but does. It's thought provoking. <laughs> It gets the people going. All right. Well, let's get into this week's fresh hop beer that I'm drinking from our friends at Lucky Envelope Brewing. It's the Fresh Hop Centennial Pilsner, which I picked up because you don't often see a fresh hop Pilsner yeah, non-IPA. There we go. Maybe every once in a while pale ale, but a Pilsner is very unusual in the fresh hop field. Our light, crispy, oh-so-crushable fresh hop Pilsner was hot back steeped with over 10 pounds per barrel, wow. freshly harvested. That's more, I think, than last week. That's Centennial a lot more little amount of pounds per barrel. <laughs> from Crosby Hops. This Pilsner showcases the citrusy lime, floral, and fresh-cut grass character of what Centennial flowers. Uh, I also had uh, over the weekend the Fresh Hop Friends from uh, the collaboration between Russian River and Bale Breaker doing a Fresh Hop beer that was quite outstanding. Not a competitor, or well, it's the I don't know if we're doing a are we doing a search for am I doing a search for Seattle's best Fresh oh, Hop beer or just are you're just drinking them now? Oh, yeah. Fresh Hops wouldn't count. I see what you're saying. Yeah, got it. They're, they're got definitely it, yes. not IPA. We're we're pausing the IPAs. Oh, okay. Uh, I watched. How, how that, would you? How would you rank that one, though? I was probably near the top. How many of us have them? Uh, I I used it to wash down a tasty mac and cheeseburger. Hello! It's Sadly. on the mac and cheeseburger right now. Did we talk about this? We didn't preview this, did we? No, because we recorded last Monday. And sadly, and... We, we're not recording any time while it's actively on the menu. It's gone? Yeah, today was the last day. Oh, my God! So All right. Well, I guess I won't be having one for another year. I really yeah. never have them unless you bring it over, and it's usually pretty cold. <laughs> Not quite the same. Little Woody's, I, I just, look, put a location in Renton. You could go to Tokyo. Renton, Washington, though, that's too far. I like as if I don't. I have to say this in the world as if I don't know who owns Little Woody's. But, like, <laughs> Renton, Washington is right there. It is ahead of the curve. Downtown Renton is prime prime real estate because every other local business in seattle is scared to be there except for top pot donuts thank you and taco time and taco time that is true taco times i mean taco time is right into its core right obviously but top pot donuts is the only nouveau seattle chain restaurant that isn't scared to be in renton washington the market is there for the taking for the taking little woodies i can't even there must be some burger places in downtown Renton. There was the one. I think it's closed now, though. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably closed. It would be massive to have a little Woody's in downtown Renton. People would be oh. there every day. Also, it's only a matter of time until Dix comes to Renton. So you got to uh, beat them to the punch. Dix, that one. where are you? You scared? Everybody seems to be scared. Dix, Renton's right there. 
All right, well, our toast this week, we start with a congratulation to the Sounders, who clinched a return to the playoffs for the 14th time in their 15 MLS seasons. The streak continues of the Sounders and Mariners never making the playoffs in the same year. It is truly uncanny. I mean, yeah. There's the only one the, year the Mariners the, made it. I know. There's I get it. But you're saying is if it's like a lot it. of times that it went back and forth, and it's just like, oh, they keep going back and forth. No, it's just the Mariners don't make the playoffs. But what are the, the odds that the one year the, the Sounders don't make it is the year the Mariners do make it? It's a one-time coincidence. The Mariners aren't trying to make the playoffs. They're just trying to win 54% of games. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a bit. They're not trying to win World Series. They're trying to win 54% of their games. Uh, Sounders also tied a franchise record with their 13th clean sheet of the season on Saturday. Wow. Following the Mariners setting an all-time record for shutouts. So they, they can do that in the same calendar year. Uh, also, congrats to O.L. Rain, who set an NWSL record for standalone attendance with 34,060 fans at Friday's final regular season home game for Megan Rapino, a game that I attended. Could be Rapino's last game in Seattle, period, but the Reigns still have a chance to move into the top four and host a playoff game, as we'll discuss later. All right. All right, now it's time for your favorite segment, listener email. There we go. And this time there's two of the listener emails. Oh, there the listen- really are a lot lately. How often? Listen- would 54% of me- We'll get to that later. Well, yeah. The listener continues to be very engaged by ambiguous mid- Midwest pizza. Wow. <laughs> Uh, So first up, this email from Cal. Uh, Hey, guys, I've been living in Cleveland for the last year after spending the majority of my life in the Northwest. I now to pack it up and move to the Cleve. My now fiance grew up eating Dewey's and has a location just down the street from her house. And the first time I had it, I immediately told her it was shockingly similar to the pizza I always ordered back home. Hmm. I had a very good laugh listening last week and finding out the connection with Pagliacci. I would say the Dewey's dough is just a touch thicker on the bottom, but the flavor is quite similar. Some of the copying combinations are a little more Midwestern, although I'm not one to complain about buffalo chicken pizza. But oh. there are a number of pizzas that would it's be at home on the Pagliacci menu. What? Nothing. <laughs> I'm saying there'd be cottage cheese on the pizza because it's Midwestern. <laughs> I see. <laughs> anyway. Our go-to is the porky fig with prosciutto, blue cheese, gorgonzola, and caramelized onions on a fig jam base, which is a pretty close comparison to last month's fig prosciutto fig primo. Yeah, that sounds very similar and also excellent. Yeah. Uh, we're in the process of moving back to Seattle, and I'm looking forward there to getting her opinion on Pagliacci in the near future. As an aside, thanks for all the great podcasts over the year and keeping me up to date on Seattle's food scene. I moved down to Portland in 2009, and listening always mm. made me feel a bit closer to home, particularly during the pandemic. A lot of cities As, being named there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> As one of two brothers, it really makes me happy to hear you guys go back and forth and yell at each other. Hoping to come what? say hi next time there is a Pelton cast live. Wow. All right. Thank that. I, I appreciate it, Cal. Uh, except for the living in Portland part. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> It's the next best thing to live in in Seattle. I guess that's true. It happens. It happens to the best of us sometimes, including Megan Rapino. <laughs> Very true. But before she lived in Seattle. All right. Also this week, an email from the listener, Joseph Kendall, who informs us there's a spot in Fremont called Petoskey's, which hails, quote, the thinnest crust in town. <laughs> According to their website, we are known for wood-fired premium Minnesota and St. Louis style pizzas. 
with cracker. There's Minnesota pizzas now. I I don't even know about this one. I did not. Perfect pizza sauce, tasty toppings, and finished with premium Wisconsin mozzarella or Provol cheese shipped straight from Imo's in St. Louis, Missouri. I want to cut it in squares. I actually want the Provol cheese. I legitimately want it. I got to say, it doesn't look bad on their website. It just, just people looks being like, like pro- the cheese straight, is terrible. I have to know. It straight up just looks like provolone. I gotta say. Where is this at? It's in Fremont. Yeah, it's on the thirty sixth Avenue in Fremont. Saturday, right. Saturday afternoon, evening. We're celebrating a Husky victory well, against Oregon. Why? Why would you say this? Knock on wood. I'll be at like a thirty six percent chance of winning. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I have a healthy amount of fear here. I'm just saying, I'm throwing it out there. Post game, Michael Penix has clinched the Heisman at this point, okay. right? Why? Easily. I I think we go get some Provol pizza to celebrate and to celebrate our new home in the Big Ten and where we've <laughs> where we've beaten our uh, fellow Big Ten brethren. And the uh, we'll talk about that later too. Wow, we actually have a lot of stuff to talk about. We do have a lot of stuff to talk about. That is accurate. I like this intel. I'm I'm so hyped on. I mean, also, I just want to try the. I love the thinnest crust in town as being a claim to fame. It's very ambiguous and Midwestern. It's like when we're like the Peltoncast, the only Seattle sports podcast that sometimes covers Husky soccer. <laughs> not not this week. I thought they were going to be in. They beat ranked San Diego State <laughs> team at home, but then they lost to to UCLA. We're like, nowhere else will you find coverage of occasionally Husky soccer. And also, for some reason, Italian uh, national soccer team. Oh, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, loads of toppings distinguish the Minnesota-style pizza besides the thin square cut, the tavern-style, you know, thin crust square cut. And according to the takeout, a spicy, passive-aggressive sauce. (laughs) So... Are people in Minnesota known to be passive aggressive? I, I feel like I people don't know. Are, are just genuinely friendly in Minnesota. That makes me feel more Northwest to me. I, it's like the fucking Mall of America on these pizzas, right? There's so many <laughs> toppings. Yes. It's like it's enough toppings to feed both Minneapolis and St. Paul. There we go. All right. Well, that covers everything we know about Minneapolis because <laughs> I couldn't think of a Prince reference to include in there. Uh... <laughs> well, the the... The Prince reference is that there's little pancakes on the pizzas. There we go. I actually, this was the, oh God, it's been so many years. It's probably the five-year anniversary of when I went to Minneapolis on this last weekend in October. Uh, <clears throat> I, I know it is because the people whose wedding you went to in Minneapolis oh, they're recently celebrating posted their, five, their, it was five their anniversary. fifth anniversary. And I will say there was something, <laughs> this year I was in Sacramento on that date, 93 degrees in Sacramento. And I was really pining. I know you're going to hate to hear this for that 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 early fall cold that you get in only a place like Minneapolis, where in Minneapolis, it's not like it's not to the winter yet. It's just like it is colder here than almost anywhere else right now. Uh, and and I was just like, man, that just like chill, that little chill of cold. The first one of the year I was pining for that this weekend. Also, because it was 93 degrees in Sacramento. So I, I mean, I, I think we can agree that 93 degrees in October is is too much. But if you, the weather we had in Seattle in the 70s on the first weekend of October, just bottle it, sell it. I would pay all the money for it. It was it was a little hot. It was a little hot on Saturday. Sunday, I think, was the day. And then the crisp at night. I'm okay with that. I'll accept that. 
Yes. Got a layer. Got a layer this time around. All right. Let's get into sports, starting with the Seattle Mariners. You alluded to this earlier. I, I don't have to do takes anymore, right? Can I just, I, I can wait. I can just spring training, come back with the takes. Maybe if there's a special occasion, come back with takes. I, I can think of one occasion this year that might merit some takes, but no, they're, they're traditionally an in-season only thing. I, I do. Let's talk about the thing. I don't know if this is a hot take, but say, say the statement and then I have a thought on it. So Mariners management delivered their State of the Union postseason press conference. <laughs> And as part of his opening statement, here's what Jerry DePoto had to say. But the reality is, is if, if what you're doing is focusing year to year on what we have to do in the World Series this year, you might be one of the teams that's laying in the mud and can't get up for another decade. So we're actually doing the fan base a favor <laughs> in asking for their patience to win the World Series while we continue to build a sustainably good roster. Our job is to think more broadly. We're looking at a six to 10 year window. When I talk about sustainability, I can't tell you that we're going to win the World Series. I can tell you that if we win 54% of our games over the course of the decade, you're going to play in a World Series. Teams that do these things get in the World Series. Now, and that is true in the wild card era. Now, and that is true in the wild card era. It's true in the divisional format dating back to 1969. You've got, I think, an 85 or 90% chance of reaching a World Series if you make that your goal. If we make winning the World Series your goal, we will do insane things that will cut the sustainability part of the project short. That's not how we think. DePoto subsequently on his appearance on Seattle Sports said 710. I'm generally embarrassed by the way, at least that comment and especially one other oh, was received. <laughs> said that he did not he message. He fucking thought, he, he's, he said he thought about it and he delivered that message and then he put it out there and the people sent it back and he was just like, <laughs> oh shit. My favorite part about like it. I returned to sender. When he was like, that's actually, I didn't know that he, he I guess, rescinded it. I suppose that's not quite it. But, like, they always tell us what they're going to do. You know what I mean? The Mariners are never secretive about it. That's what I kept telling you about Shohei is the Mariners have been telling us what they're going to do forever. That's not even the part that I want to complain about, though. It is the little laugh when he's like, have you watched this rather than read it? I've, I only saw that in uh, the Seattle Times' transcription of it. The, did they mention the laugh? The laugh? They when he's like, we're actually laugh. doing the fans a favor. <laughs> and you're just like, what? Is, like, seriously, how did you get to this point where you're like, I'm just going to say this bullshit thing about being slightly above average. Literally, the Mariners won 54% of their games this year, and I have checked my calendar. They are not going to be playing in the World Series. But, well, okay. here was his point, though. Like, but no, no, no. I, no, we can get to his point after. Okay. But the part about being condescending to fans, being like, I am doing them a favor here. And then the chuckle, the condescending chuckle is just like, you never need to do that. All you need to do is say, Pete Carroll is so fucking good at this. Like, Pete Carroll Seahawks management is so good at this. Is be, saying, Jerry DePoto should have told Mariners fans to toughen up? No, he should have said, we're in on every player. That's what Pete Carroll says. Anytime there's a free age, and also the Seahawks do this, but like anytime there's a player who's disgruntled, anytime there's a free agent that's released, Pete Carroll says, we look at everybody. Yep. And you know what? You hear that and you're like, hell yeah, the Mariners or the Seahawks are thinking about it. And the Mariners are like, most of these players we're not even considering. Just let's just be clear here. Any of the good players that are free agents, eh, we're not even, we're not even kicking the tires. All you have to do is be like, of course we're having conversations with everybody. That's it. They don't have to sign the players. They should be like, hey, we're this is coming from a manager. 
you just be like, we're on your side. Like, that's it. That's all the people want to hear. We all have the same goals. It's be like, oh, this ended up being a little bit more expensive than we wanted it to be, but we really tried. You can fucking bullshit that all the time and the media will eat it up. But when you get to the condescending laugh, that's when you look like an asshole. And that's what the Mariners front office looks like right now. That's accurate. I also just say Julio is the timeline. That's that's what you say. Our best player is 22 years old. Like, we're, we want to be good throughout Julio Rodriguez's prime. That's how you say it. Not sustainably good, which is like corporate speak. Sustainably good implies something about profits. And I think it was the Phillies manager, owner, right? I can't remember his name right now. What's the Phillies owner's name? I have no idea who owns the he, Phillies. He was out there giving out baseballs and shit to the crowd. You were just like, God damn, <laughs> Philadelphia, right? Like they're, everything about the Phillies just makes you want to be a fan of the Phillies. And that's what a baseball team should be. It should be a likable part of your city because ultimately there, there's not like, there's nothing else to it aside from being an important part of the city because they're fucking the city in every other way, right? Like that's what you have to be. You have to be good and on the field and make the people happy with it because everything else you have to turn a blind eye to, right? As a professional sports franchise. So give us this. But he he had a quote where he was like, what was the profit margin of the 1927 Yankees? And that's how you approach it. You don't say, I'm here to make profits. You say the teams that are memorable forever, the dollars that your owner makes is never how you look back on a team. And I get it. You don't want to lose so much money that you have to sell the team. But the reality is this 54%, this like bottom feeding situation, this in, in the in the mud or whatever, that's Kansas City Royals shit right there. Like this is not Seattle Mariner shit. This is too big of a market to I, actually I have. I don't think that quote means what you think it means. He's I think saying, the quote is talking about like, fuck no. them picks, basically. But that's not that's not what baseball is. Baseball isn't a situation where you can spend and then you have to bottom out. The only reason you have to bottom out is if your ownership doesn't want to spend more money. There, there isn't are, a salary there cap. There are competitive you mechanisms. Always have. There are teams that have been the Yankees have been competitive forever. Basically, even this year they ended up being semi-competitive. There are so many franchises that are competitive year after year after year after year for decades, and he's saying. This is not Jerry. It's not Jerry DePoto's money, right? But he's saying John Stanton doesn't want to spend like that. John Stanton wants to be a small market team and to be a small market team and compete. This is how we have to do it. And honestly, I, I of course, you won't say that because it's criticizing his boss. I get it. I would rather hear that, though, because the reality is what he's saying is, hey, we're not going to spend that much money. And for a team that doesn't spend that much money, this is how we have to approach it. Period. You know what? I, you know what? I'd rather hear from Jerry DePoto. Fucking nothing. nothing. Exactly. Like, it should not be a storyline what the GM says, or the, the president in this case, Justin Hollander, is the, the GM of the team or, at this point. Or it's, this was but there's also But season. there's also all these, you know, there's this, the a segment of the Mariners fan base and the media that cover the team that's like, why don't they just come out and say that they're going to spend a bunch of money in free agency? It's like, because that's terrible negotiating. 
Like that would be bad for the team if they did I mean, that. There's That's no the... agents who's going to be like, "Well, you said publicly you're going to spend a bunch of money." Yes, they're, spend they're all the, the agents would do that. They, yes. they are going to spend whatever the players cost. The market is not determined by what you say to your fans. The market is determined by what other teams. Your are desperation to outbid another team is is determined by what you say to your fans. And I do think there's but, no element of that but, in the Mariners raising season ticket prices. All substantially. you say is, "Oh, did they raise season ticket prices substantially?" Yes. These motherfuckers better spend this offseason because I'm telling you, it is thin ice. I don't, think, I don't tell us you're going to spend. Just do it. Do the thing. What they should say is, that was a disappointing season. We're going to try to be better next year. Our goal disapp- is to be I, a be- I will say, I, or, or I agree did, with them. Our, it goal, was, our goal was to reach the playoffs every single year. We didn't achieve that goal. It yes, was a, it was a disappointing season. end of this season. It was a good season. We didn't reach that goal. Look, we're fucking workshopping it right now. How hard is this? And they're just <laughs> jotting it down, and they're just like, okay, 54%. Yes, yes. Tell, the, tell them they're, they should be thankful for us. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. There's such a like non-fan view think, think piece that happened that went into getting to this place that they got to where they're just like, little chuckle. Little chuckle right there. <laughs> they should be thankful for us. <laughs> but like, I think you're underselling. He's talking about winning 54% of games over a decade. That's not not one season, like over 10 seasons if, in a row. That's very hard to do. And it is true that most teams that do that make the make the World Series. Historically, if you count like every individual year, so it's like the Braves from like 95 through 2000, whatever, because they did it a lot of 10-year spans. 86% of those teams since the introduction of divisions in 1969 have gone to the world series. It is interesting. It's lower in the past decade, though. It's only 75% in the past decade, but still like if you're this good over a long period of time, you are eventually going to make the world series. The odds are in favor of it. The trick is staying this good for the long period of time. Just saying that that's your goal to be 54%. Your goal should basically be to win every game. Like I don't, well, that's not, that's not a useful goal. It is a misapplication of stats though. And and it's not an understanding of actually how to use these stats. It's I mean, I think the way to put it is things. we're just going to be in the mix for a long period of time. Our goal is to be in the mix for a long time. Yeah. But like there was a, there was a season that the Mariners could have had where they were way worse than this. And they got lucky to be at precisely 54%. Oh, the they got lucky. They under substantially underperformed their run differential. Overall, throughout the year, they substantially underperformed their run differential. Yeah, there was something. I it was one of those things where, like, the Mariners, and and maybe this evens out over time. They over, they have overperformed their run differential. They underperformed this year, but at the same time, it was like, I do also think like Mariners management games. is still paying to some degree for the sins of the early two thousands Mariners and the famous like Al Martin trade deadline and Lou Pinella's frustration with the team's unwillingness to add at the trade deadline. And that was a situation with like a very old team because guess what? You know, you know, some teams that didn't make the World Series that won 54% of their games over a 10 year span? I don't know where. Was that 2001, 2002, 2003 Seattle Mariners? But what was the 10 year span? In 93 to 2003? I believe it starts 92 to 2001. And then 94 to 2003 is the last year because then in 2004 they lost 100 games. They won 54% of their games during that time period. So you can ultimately have some pretty bad seasons, but there's, they didn't like, they had a super. What also helps talent. if you went 116 in one of them. 
sure, they brought up other superstar talent. They they did a good job of maintaining to be good, but also they went out in free agency and got players. So this was 2002 through 2004. Was the, that uh, 2001 team was not assembled like this current team is assembled. I there are some players who are in-house talent, but like they had a huge free agent signing that everybody seems to like quite a bit. I've crunched the numbers that they're not well, on my side. You know what I missed? This. More than 54% of people disagree with me. On somehow, this we, one. somehow we got so distracted by, by uh, the St. Louis style pizza. I forgot to read the rest of Joseph Kendall's email. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we're going to go back for a second. Okay. In regards to the second best pizza in Seattle search, uh, personally, I think their pizza is rather ambiguous, but my grandfather, who is from St. Louis, would make a pizza from scratch, and it was exactly like this pizza. Also, in regards to Seattle's best slash only trough search, never seen a sporty event there, but the Tractor Tria- Tavern has a trough. I think many oh, yeah. dive bars around here. And oh, finally, there, I'd like to. There's a yeah. trough at, um, oh my God, the right across from the football stadium. I go there all the time. The Hooverville has a trough. Yeah. And finally, I'd like to nominate Rocco's as Seattle's second best pizza. While wildly overpriced, their pizza holds up and might actually be worth it. Special mention for the Chicago-style Delfino's, which also has a nice thin crust. I have not been to Delfino's. That's the one Chicago-style rand I believe that's in like near U Village. I was going to say, uh, I've driven by there. And Windy City Pie, or its sister location, Breezy Town Pizza, which, interjecting here, sadly, Breezy Town Pizza is no more, yeah. although there is a different location <laughs> in the, the same spot that uh, was it's recommended similar. to us. It is not as ambiguously mis- Midwestern, though. It's Clock Out Lounge. Right? Yeah. Clock Out Lounge is the bar where that's it's wh- at. That's where it is. Yeah. Delfino's looks pretty freaking good to me. Yeah, I would definitely like to try it. Shady Lane Pizza oh, is yes, now yeah. the name of it. Uh, and then he closed with a question. Oh. oh. Oh, sorry. Neither is Pequod's level, but we're trying. And then, would you rather fight a thousand tiny Ichiros or one giant moose? <laughs> one giant what? Moose. Moose? Yeah. A thousand tiny Ichiros? Yeah. I'd definitely rather fight the giant, the tiny Ichiros. I, I agree. Uh, although, the tiny Ichiros, imagine how many home runs they could hit if they really wanted to. <laughs> But yes, I, I think the more important point that Jerry Depoto made is like, this team isn't bad. They just need, it, this was my point last week, there's just a few holes that they need to upgrade on. And I think free agency is a way to do that. Trading for veterans who are considered overpaid would be another good way to do that. And both of those do require increased spending, but you know, they don't need necessarily, even though I would like them, obviously, to go out and sign Shohei Otani, they don't need to do that to be to win a World Series. I just feel like there are degrees to it. There, There's different degrees of the Padres spending and then other teams who are, who are spending a little bit more moderately. Like, you don't have to sign every free agent, but I was looking at this, I was kind of thinking about it yesterday, and there are actually some teams in the playoffs who are competitive that don't really have big free agent signings. So, well, so that's the other point that, like Jerry DePoto could have made more accurately is uh, Ben Lindbergh at the ringer wrote about this last week. This was, this season had the lowest correlation between team payroll and record in major league baseball since 1992. But it's somewhat bizarrely time, fi- followed if, last if season, which was the low, highest correlation since 99. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It might just be a coincidence, like, or, or an outlier season. I wouldn't say that, if last season is the highest, this season is the lowest. I wouldn't be like, well, this season is representative of it. That season isn't. 
I would be like, this season is an outlier. Generally speaking, if we're talking about great periods of time, spending is correlated to winning. And it is funny that, you know, now the Rangers are the example of spending in free agency leading to winning. Whereas a year ago, they were like, oh, don't sign free agents. They signed Seager and Sevian and they had injuries and they they were still nowhere near the playoff race. So who knows? Maybe in a year... You know, well, I don't think the I don't think the Mets are going to be redeemed for their offseason. Well, they've also traded a lot of the players, right? Like, but someone else spends a lot of money, and they the teams you know, weren't redeemed a... over the year. But Carlos Correa is ha- having monster games in the playoffs right now for the Twins. Big free agent signing. Mariners didn't make a call. Trey Turner is I don't know if he's having monster games or whatever, but he's still an important part of the Phillies team. You have the Rangers who have the, the Rangers are the favorite right now to win the World Series, I believe, betting favorites. Uh, and you have those aforementioned free agent signings. There are some teams that don't have super prominent free agents that are still competitive in the playoffs. But at the same time, most of the teams that are there and are still standing have those players on the roster. But it's not yeah. that the Mariners need to, that the Mariners need to sign every free agent. It's that it would be nice a if they were even seeming to be in conversation. If we if we read the fucking hot stove league, right? I'm following Bob Nightingale for some reason. If I'm reading tweets from him, and I see Mariners are in on whatever free agent, it would be nice to see that. And at the same yeah. time, it's just one player. It doesn't have to be the absolute top of the market. I don't think a Carlos Correa signing is necessarily completely transforming your payroll for the next decade or whatever. There can be players who can be dropped in the lineup. This lineup needs another player. Like, we know it. We can see it. And it's not necessarily like you can look to the minors and be like, oh, those players are there. Because at some of the other teams, they are, right? This isn't the Rays or something like that, where you could be like, they've developed all this talent. You have to find it somewhere. Or or the Orioles, who continue to have an amazing farm system. Well, yes. you know, playing in this round. Uh, Atlanta the, is... The, the Orioles also build up. But like, what did they trade for Matt Olson? They lost Freddie Freeman and traded for Matt Olson. It's not that different how that happened. Atlanta, after winning today, is now the gambling favorite to win the World Series. Are they really? Yeah. That changed that quickly? Apparently it did. Either though okay. you read it wrong before. No, I One saw a tweet about it. Probably from Bob Nightingale. Okay. Well, I just looked. It was Atlanta. Uh, they, they were earlier today. But, like, <clears throat> Atlanta still lost Freddie Freeman and went out and added Matt Olson. You know? It's something where the Mariners have Ty France at first base. They don't have either Freddie Freeman or Matt Olson. Anything more on the Mariners? Ugh, can we stop talking about them? Just stop saying stupid stuff also every offseason. I'm actually happy that Jerry DePoto noticed how poorly that was received because I'm I'm a little bit shocked that he did. I, I'm not shocked because I was on Twitter. Uh, let's talk about the Seattle Kraken. Okay. Finished the preseason 3-2-1 with Ellie Tolvanen's five points leading the team. Kraken kept just 22 players on their final roster instead of the maximum 23 for cap purposes. Uh, Joey Decord earned the backup goaltending spot with the departure of Martin Jones. After missing all of 2022-23 following an ACL tear, Chris Drieger will start the season with AHL affiliate Coachella Valley. Also down at Coachella Valley, 2022 lottery pick Shane Wright and fellow top prospect Riker Evans, while playoff breakout star Ty Cartier made the roster. 
Uh, Kraken entered the season number 15 in ESPN's power rankings, seventh among West teams. Dom Lucian and stats-based projections at the Athletic have them 20th with 38% chances of making the playoffs. Somewhat surprising given those projections were high on the crack in the previous two years, but they are very likely due for shooting percentage regression after ranking second in the NHL by making 11.6% of their shots last season and first by a wide margin on five-on-five situations that are generally more predictive. On the positive side, Kraken do return Andre Burakovsky, who missed the second half in their playoff run due to injury, and uh, they remain a slight favorite to make the playoffs, according to Caesars Sportsbook, which implies 52% odds with where they are. For the second time in three years, the Kraken will be opening their season in Vegas, this time on ring night for the Golden Knights on national TV on ESPN, Tuesday night. It all gets started. Who was that that second email from? (laughs) Joseph Kendall. Joseph Kendall, very knowledgeable about Seattle pizza. Yes, I agree. I'm impressed. No, I'm looking through the the top free agents for next year. They're all pitchers. There's like two hitters. Yeah, we did this last week. I'm just being frustrated about it. Well, that's why I think the trading for an overpaid veteran who is on a, a, a contract with one or two years left is the way to go. It really is like, I mean, I, I... there's going to be such a huge market for players that otherwise there wouldn't have necessarily been, you know, like, but I mean, part of the, there being no good free agents is there must be good hitters under contract because it's not like they got rid of all the good hitters. (laughs) The hitters are, you know, they're going to be as good or as bad relative to each other as they always are. Okay. Fair enough. I guess (coughs) there are more hitters to trade for under contract. That's what I'm going with. Okay. That's I mean that's I mean I think part of it is like the the prospects who have come up have been really good. That's another thing that Ben Lundberg wrote about this week. He's he's been very prolific on the ringer. But uh Ben Lundberg um, wrote about how prospects are doing better relative to Correct. Past. Like two thousand twenty seem to have been pretty monster. Yeah, I mean Baltimore being the ultimate example of that, but uh uh the Sounders not as Sounders, the, the Mariners not as much on the hitting side, but Aside from Julio Rodriguez, but definitely on the pitching side. <laughs> it's been one whole year since they had a generational hitter. <laughs> we demand more. <laughs> Faster, uh, I say. <laughs> all right, Seattle Sounders. <laughs> Not to defend the Mariners. <laughs> Sorry for defending the Mariners there for a second. It's out of character. Clinched that playoff berth with a much-needed three points snared at the death on Wednesday, getting the winning goal from Christian Rodon in the sixth minute of stoppage time against the LA Galaxy. Jordan Morris gave the Sounders an early lead before the Galaxy equalized just after halftime. Another deserved win with the Sounders attempting 18 shots to five for LA, which put just one on goal. That was one more than the Vancouver Whitecaps had on Saturday in a scoreless draw uh, with the Sounders as they settled for a point but extended their unbeaten streak to eight matches. Sounders had five shots on goal among their 17 attempts, doubling Vancouver's expected goals total. So they continue to pretty comfortably outplay teams. Uh, they have this weekend off before decision day on Sunday, October 21st, having fallen to third in the Western Conference. Okay. But again, assured a playoff berth. Oh, rain. 
still looking to secure a playoff berth. They couldn't find the net in front of, front of that larger standalone crowd in NWSL history. Created a lot of good chances, it felt like, after Elise Bennett entered the game as a wingback, but then needed a pair of great saves from like Claudia Dickey in the final minutes to turn back two opportunities in the box for Trinity Rodman and preserve the clean sheet in another scoreless draw against the Washington Spirit. No goals in two games at Lumen Field on Friday and Saturday this week. Uh, the NWSL, it's not an international break, so the first ever NWSL Decision Day is coming up on Sunday when the rain will visit the Chicago Red Stars who are in last place and eliminated from playoff contention. But this is not a gimme in the very compact NWSL standings. They're just five points behind the rain. With a win, the rain would assure a playoff spot, could still finish as high as third if they win. They'd pass any of North Carolina, Gotham FC, and Washington that don't win their finales. And we know that for sure one of those teams won't because North Carolina and Washington play each other on the final day of the season while Gotham FC faces Kansas City, another team that has been eliminated from playoff contention. Interesting. So why is this the first ever NWSL decision day? Well, in the past, MLS, I forget how many years ago, it was maybe four or five years ago, they went to this model of playing all the games at the same time on the final day. Similar, similar to what? To European, European yeah, European legs. soccer does, yeah. right? And obviously the NFL has borrowed elements mm-hmm. of it. They have the two windows plus the you know, the standalone Sunday night football game and now Saturday game. And so NWSL has now taken, taken this. Yep. Okay. So I think it's great. Yeah. Nice addition. So we will know next week, whether Megan Rapinoe's career continues or not, and whether there's another game in Seattle or not. All right. Let's talk about the Seahawks and save UW football for last. Okay. Wow. They get the hammer against Oregon. Yeah. I think if you're, you have college game day coming and you're playing your arch rival and you're both ranked in the top we 10. We used to never do this. This is a new thing. It is. This is a new Pelton cast thing. The Mariners, the Mariners kind of took it there for a second. Hilarious to think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A little injury news to start. Charles Cross practiced Monday as the Seahawks returned to practice after the bye week. That's a good sign. Uh, Pete Carroll says he expects Jamal Adams to clear concussion protocol and be able to practice on Tuesday, which is terrific news, obviously, uh, you know, coming off of his injury in his return. Seahawks on Sunday head to Cincinnati to potentially enjoy some Dewey's pizza on Saturday night and then take on the Bengals who are perhaps the NFL's most confounding team. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I Dallas could be in there. I was going to say the Cowboys, the Cardinals are pretty confounding. Kind of all, all I don't teams. know if the Cardinals are that confounded. I mean, they're confounding for beating the Cowboys, but there are some other teams too, where it's like, didn't the Titans get beaten? Like they beat the Bengals like 24 to three and then came back and lost to the Colts. Uh, there's some. It's early in the season. There's some confounding teams. But like the expectations for the Bengals were super. I mean, really, it's the confounding nature of Joe Burrow's calf, probably yes. more than anything. I, I I think the Bengals are less confounding and more scary now. They were less scary a week ago than they are in this moment. But, but we can't be sure this is the version of the Bengals we're going to get. I mean, I'm I have appropriate fear that the version I think we saw we on Sunday is go in assuming that is going to be the Bengals that we're going to get. It doesn't mean that they're. The the peak Bengals are a very good team, but it's not like we're not necessarily talking class of the ASC at this point for the Bengals. I think that's a pretty fair assumption. Even the victory that they had right now, it seems as though the Bengals, I would put them back within like middle expectation preseason at that point. 
Their 15th in Football Outsiders predictive day of metric that incorporates preseason projections, which is four spots behind the Seahawks. They started one in three with the two losses by 20 plus points to both Cleveland and, as you mentioned, Tennessee before their breakout win Sunday at Arizona, 34 to 20. Joe Burrow, who's been dealing with that calf injury since the preseason, looked healthier on Sunday, had a season high four rushing attempts, including a 10 yard scramble that was longest this season and topped 300 yards and 70% completions for the first time all season. Yes. Most of that damage went to Jamar Chase, who, apologies if you were playing against him in fantasy, had under 40 receiving yards in the season's first two games, but has gone for at least 12 catches and 140 yards in two of his last three, both wins, including 15 catches, 192 yards, three touchdowns on Sunday in Arizona, meaning he is now averaging the most yards per game of his career. That's wild. I am so excited to see, I mean, terrified, but so excited to see the Seahawks corners match up against Jamar Chase. Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's get through the rest of the Bengals because I want to talk about that in a second. Okay. Uh, Bengals played that game without T. Higgins due to a rib injury. Higgins was struggling struggling previously, has caught just 37.5% of his targets for 4.0 yards per target, down from 68% and 9.4 a year ago. Uh, Slot Trenton Irwin. Stepped in for Higgins, had a career-high eight catches for 60 yards in his absence. He's Stanford product. Uh, Bengals do not like to use tight ends, unlike unlike Shane Waldron. Their tight ends have combined for less than 100 receiving yards all year, including, of course, Drew Sample, who is an outstanding blocker, but not much of a receiver. That's actually kind of incredible. I So, I mean, this is one, the second that I saw the Jamar Chase stats, I immediately thought about Reek Woolen, Devin Witherspoon. Jamal Adams and the Seahawks secondary because we think we know what we have in the secondary. We're excited about it. We think this is something that's bubbling here right now. Preseason, all the talk when you're talking about best receiving cores in the league, Bengals are pretty near the top of that list, right? I mean, it's definitely, it's bubbling, but you look at the last two weeks, you know, not discounting the buy, the Giants, not exactly a great test of your downfield pass with their downfield passing attack. And you know, Carolina, uh, perhaps more dangerous with Andy Dalton at the controls. But, you know, we're still talking about Adam Thielen at all. This is not the receiving core that Cincinnati, particularly, you know, if T. Higgins is effective, healthy, and as effective as he has been in past seasons, is playing. That's what I'm saying. This is when we get the test. This is when we fully get to know exactly, at this point, Devin Witherspoon is going to improve. Rick Wallen's going to improve. But at this point, where is this Seahawks secondary? And I love the idea of just fire on fire, right? Of seeing Jamar Chase coming off one of the best games of his career, those 15 catches, those three touchdowns, and then playing against the Seahawks secondary and how much of an impact those players can have. So I, I personally am... I. Look, would I rather it be the Bengals from weeks one through four? Maybe, I guess. But at the same time, like it is fun to have what we think will be a barometer for this young Seahawks secondary and seeing those players competing against who is maybe the best receiver in the league at the moment. Look, you know what uh, Pete Carroll would say about this, that, uh, you know, the your opponent is important to you being a competitor because he, absolutely you know, tests you. So you, lo- you love your opponent. Yeah. For giving you the chance to compete. And I think that's how I feel about this one. Uh, And because to me, I told you last weekend, I woke up on Sunday and I was just like, I'm so upset that we don't get to watch Devin Witherspoon play football this week. Everybody else in the roster is great, but I'm really upset that we don't get to watch Devin Witherspoon play football. And it's been too long. 
It's only Monday as we're recording this. We have to go another six days of our lives until we can see Devin Witherspoon play football again, and that is too many days. So having that chance and having the opportunity to have see him play against these high-level players, that's what we want. We don't want those Bengals. We don't want those Bengals from earlier in the season. So I do think the breakout, ultimately, it makes it a much more difficult game, but I the fun factor and seeing those players, I think, is going to be huge. Yeah. Uh, the Cincinnati defense has also been a bit of a disappointment. They're 22nd in defensive DOA after finishing 7th last year. Uh, they were 7th in drop back EPA down to 12th and 27th in opponent rushing EPA, 30th in opponent yards per carry thus far. Opponents averaging 5.3 yards per carry. They've given up at least 170 yards on the ground in all three losses. Bengals let both starting safeties, Jesse Bates the third and Von Bell, depart in free agency as well as cornerback Eli Apple. Cincinnati is top 10 in sack rate, led by six from Trey Hendrickson to rank second in the league, but uh, somewhat confoundingly near the bottom of the league in hurry and pressure rate is tracked by Sport Radar. So you're saying the Seahawks should be able to move the ball in this one? That's been the history. I mean, in, you know, Arizona, certainly in the first half, was able to. Uh, the Cardinals' offense kind of dried up in the second half as the Bengals pulled away. But especially, I think Pete Carroll is, is relishing the opportunity to run the football down the Bengals' throats here. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's what we've seen so far with the Bengals is a weaker defense than they've been in the past, which is to be expected, right? Because of the success that they've had losing those safeties. I think this is going to be a game. I think it's going to be a shootout actually. And I think it's going to be fun seeing both of these teams score, score points going into it. Like with the anticipation that the Seahawks offense should be in the 30 plus point range and it kind of coming down to that defense. It's sort of like what we talked about preseason about where the Seahawks are, which is we know that the offense is good and will the defense be able to be at that same level as the offense? So far, they have been through these last four weeks, but I guess three weeks, these last three weeks. But th this is the chance to really understand that. And are the Seahawks, if they do score those 30 points, is that a victory? Is that something that they can comfortably take home, depending on where that defense is at? It's kind of emblematic of the like top 10 offense question mark defense that they've had so far this year and i feel like the big this is a real barometer game for the seahawks right like yeah. after two in a row against bad teams we can look back and say that that victory against the lions was a very good victory is still week two and this is the one that again that's why i'm happy that the Bengals played well i'm talking myself into this that's why i'm happy that the Bengals played well to give us a sense of where the seahawks are right now it's probably the best chance that we'll have for a little while i mean also it's, I think, an important swing game in the season. If you can get to four and one with three of your next four games at home, that's a pretty good position to be in. I mean, obviously, winning the NFC West is looking very difficult at the moment with the San Francisco 49ers uh, looking like a juggernaut. But, uh, you know, to, to feel good about your chances of making the playoffs and at least being in position to play the weakest of the, the division winners if you're the top wild card. I'm not willing to write off the NFC West yet. I'm not writing it off either, but it's it's an uphill battle. Let's put it I, that way. Again, I, we kind of talked about this last week. You said three of the next four at home. Man, this is a huge game. The more that you look at it, like the, there's an outside chance 
the Ravens on November 5th. That's the other one that is a question mark. But you look at it, and it's just the schedule's kind of broken the right way for the Seahawks with some of these games. If they could get to 4-1, to it wouldn't be out of the question. What wouldn't be out that of the they question? Could, that, it wouldn't be out of the question that they didn't lose until they played the 49ers on Thanksgiving. It's not out of the question. I, I'm just throwing that out there. They probably will, but this is, this is the Ravens. Given given their track record against Sean McVay. <sighs> we will see what that Rams team looks like on November 19th. But the way they've played, you know, like, yes, they played against bad teams. They also beat the Giants. Where are, they at? Where are the Seahawks in DVOA right now? They're 11th in Dave. In DVOA, they are 8th. Okay. Well, <laughs> I I think that it's all... I don't want to look ahead, ahead right now, but I do feel like things are building toward a very fun Thanksgiving day against the 49ers. That would be fun. I agree. And, and this game is kind of the start of it. This, this is how we really understand where the Seahawks... I don't think... I think the Seahawks offense, we know what it is. I think we can be pretty confident about the offense. Where did they rank DVOA? Did you say that offensively? Uh, seventh, I believe. Perfect. Seventh in no. DVOA? No, eighth in offensive DVOA as well. Eighth, eighth in offense and eighth overall. And where in defensively? Fourteenth. Man. This is the team that we talked about, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited about it. Uh, beyond that, we'll see. Just a lot of, you've really made the return of the awkward pause with us recording remotely this week. Uh, percentage chances of victory? I think it is over 50%. FBI agrees. They have it at 54%. The market does not agree. The Seahawks are two and a half point dogs. Basically, basically, these basically are even home field. Yeah, uh, I think it's like fifty six percent. I'm gonna go forty eight percent. Okay. All right. Lots of news from the University of Washington before we get to this weekend's matchup against Oregon. First off, they announced Troy Dannon is their new athletic director, replacing Jen Cohen after her departure for USC. Dannon spent the last eight years at Tulane following seven years in that role at his alma mater, Northern Iowa. Most notably, Dannon hired Willie Fritch shortly after taking over in 2016 when the Green Wave had been to just one bowl game in the previous 13 years and watched him build the program into a consistent bowl contender that upset USC in last year's Cotton Bowl, then managed to retain Fritz in the face of interest from bigger programs. Uh, Tulane men's college basketball also coming off their first 20-win season since 2012-13 under Ron Hunter. Hunter replaced Mike Dunleavy, who was an expensive mistake by Dan and the uh, former NBA coach. Uh, Dan has served on the NCA Constitution and Transformation Committees and is in his fourth year of on the Football Competition Committee, as well as serving on the Executive Committee of Football Oversight Committee, which is a lot of committees. 
Uh, obviously, the academics a factor here coming from Tulane to UW. School record APR for Tulane in 2022-23 with a 93% graduation rate. Oh, we're going to have another awkward silence. I, I, I didn't know no if you had fun. more. I'm, I'm literally w- looking through Willie Fritz's Wikipedia. And, you know, he just went out there, found that young upstart 63-year-old man head coach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> plucked him. Plucked him out of nowhere. <laughs> but I I was... You, j- the important question is, where do you... He's, Iowa is not, you know, exactly the, the ambiguous Midwest pizza cities. Uh-huh. You know, areas. I don't know. I'm if there's sure an Iowa next style week pizza. somebody's going to be like, actually, <laughs> Iowa style pizzas. I don't think so. It's a lot of grain on the pizza to represent the rolling grain of Iowa. That's you know. That's what we're going to hear. Just wait for it. There's going to be an email. The Iowa listener. I'm going to be playing on fucking uh, fantasy football. <laughs> <laughs> They'll crush me too. Behind a 4.1 from Jonathan Taylor in week two back. Just just roll out that 4.1 again. All right, anything 16, else? Then? 16 million guaranteed. Uh, I thought this was a great hire. I mean, it's definitely one of those hires that you look at similar to coaches, right? Where it's somebody who had kind of developed a program at a smaller college. It, it is almost exactly the same as you see when you see these coaches com- coming through, building up the program, having success, finding the bigger job, getting there. So it's kind of interesting how that happens at the athletic director level as well. Seems sure. like but when you look at all of the different factors, it seems like he was ready and prepared for this job, has experience for it. Is this is an important job at this point, right? It is yeah. it is one of the top twenty some athletic director jobs in the country. I'm not willing to say it's near the top or something, but like I I think he is in a perfect position to be successful at the University of Washington. So I was excited about that one. I thought there was a funny quote that he had where he was like, "This I intend for this to be my last job. And right. it was like, the good way? <laughs> or the <laughs> bad way? No, <laughs> just like, the good way. <laughs> but I just thought that was such a funny quote. And it's like... <laughs> he said he's hoping to win 54% of his game. <laughs> yeah, 54% of the games in college football. <laughs> not, not as good. Not as good, granted. <laughs> But I just thought that was such a funny thing where it's like, I look, we're crashing and burning or we're being successful. <laughs> One way or the other. This is my last job. <laughs> I I truly thought that was hilarious. He was like, I'm just waiting for the scandal to come out because this is going to be my last job. <laughs> so we, we, it was... We, we burned the boats. We're not going to snow going back. <laughs> such a hilarious quote about that. <laughs> it's like, okay, dude. But also the reality is, I, I it's fine that he said it. I love it. It just like it, it was like okay, but like if we're being honest, I understand what he's saying that he's not trying to use this job as a stepping stone to another job. I'm sure that's probably the case, but also Jen Cohen wasn't trying to use this job as a stepping stone to another job either. She fucking came through UW, right? And she's the athletic director at USC. There's a reality to these situations that in this moment when you've just been hired, you're not thinking about the Ohio State job, but eventually, if things go well enough. There are jobs that are out there that are more powerful, can pay more, that give you a more prominent voice within the college football world. Not even just athletic director jobs. There are jobs as heads heads of conferences and things like that. Those are things you don't say in press conferences. The owner doesn't want us to spend this money. Exactly. And I'm looking to use this as a stepping stone to my next better job. (laughs) 
He was like, we, just wait. We successfully just... workshopped a couple of things here. Yeah. No, but that, that was, I thought what he said was totally fine. I just, I heard, I read that as a quote and I was like, you mean the, you mean the good way, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you should have just said, I'm looking to retire here. I think that's the way you make sure it's a positive. Yeah. Well, you could retire at any time. Well, <laughs> there are some coaches who might be retired. Uh, <laughs> But I, I just, yeah, I'm looking to retire. That's great. Uh, anyway, don't ask Troy Fanon too much about his background. <laughs> Might be his last athletic director job. Troy Dannon. Troy Dannon. Troy Dannon. Troy Dannon. Uh, we're, still, we're still getting used to that one. Uh, the Huskies have got their conference schedules through 2028, which there is we go. very proactive. Uh, Big Ten football. Uh, releasing let's this let's just put an asterisk on it and say, for now, in yes. the same way that that Troy Troy Dannon, like the yogurt, right? Uh, that Troy Troy Dannon it's not spelled like the yogurt, but it is pronounced like the yogurt. Troy Dannon is if, this is his last athletic director job until it's not. These are UW's schedules in the Big Ten until they're not, because they might be changing at some point very quickly. They did already put out a schedule that did not include Washington <laughs> yeah. and Oregon prior to this season. <laughs> yeah, USC already had their schedule for this time next year. Notably, USC and UCLA are not protected matchups for UW that will be played on an annual basis like UW-Oregon, but are priority ones that will play at least one of USC and UCLA every year, as they have been currently. Uh, they will host Michigan Hello. in 2024, Ohio State in 2025, Hello. and Penn State in 2026. Shit's about to get real. No, it's so fun. It, it really is. Like, I'm sorry. Any, anybody who's complaining about this, fucking call me on the day that michigan comes here and tell me it's not going to be fun as hell provided UW is good <laughs> even if they're not there's Look, something you're the about... one who's been assuring me the quarterback is gonna be gonna be there i mean i'm pretty confident that there's going to be a quarterback but that there will be a high level functioning quarterback but even when it's not sometimes getting your ass kicked by a really good team is still fun like i mean having I had that experience at michigan we haven't seen that in Seattle that often in the last decade. There haven't been teams in the Pac-12 who have been playing, like who's played for the college football playoff for the Pac-12? They're Whoa. right here. That's it. G guess what? We're, we're doing the, the exciting matchups in this last year of the, no, the Pac-12, yeah, granting that many of them are teams that are heading to the Big Ten together, including yes. this weekend's match. We are speed, speed running the fun matchups all this year in 2023. But like, there's the been way, one, one, team, the one on. team from the Pac-12 that has gone to the college football playoff, and it ain't Oregon, it ain't USC, it ain't UCLA. They're right here. Number one Pac-12 after dark still exists. So after dark last Saturday, that, that USC-Arizona that awesome. game. That was so that much fun. I could go to the Death Cab Postal Service concert, co drive back, and still catch the end of the first second overtime and the uh, third the subsequent two-point conversion overtimes. Number two, imagine how embarrassing it would be to only beat Arizona by a touchdown and lead by at least a touchdown the entire game on the road. Can you imagine what an embarrassment? What, like, they should look to fire people over this shockingly <laughs> terrible performance. The Felton cast had that one all the way. Yeah. You were workshopping that one from such great heights. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I seeing these schedules, 
I mean, I think our anticipation was that Oregon, USC, and UCLA would be protected games. It would have been fine if they were. I, I, I wouldn't have I been opposed know, to I that. I wouldn't go so say, as far as to say fine. It would have been great if they were. I mean, from a travel standpoint, from a visibility in LA standpoint, playing there on an annual basis would have been really nice. The visibility thing, I think it's so stupid. Like, there's a reality. People have TVs. You know, it's not about TVs. It's about like, that's your primary recruiting area and playing there every year and having, having, but you, you know, play players there from there get a homecoming two years, right? It's basically the same as they, we play there now. It's actually more because there are some years uh, they don't play both of those teams on the road. I don't think, but uh, we rotate back and forth every year playing one of them in LA, don't we? Yes. Next so year, they're playing they will... in LA every year. No, every other year. We play one of them every year? At least one, sometimes two. Next year, we will play both of them, but they will so, both be at home. So that will not be a trip to LA. Oh, darn. <laughs> we get to play USC at home. I, I looked at the schedule for next year, and, and I love that, that it was stacked up like that, where it's stacked, where it's right in a row like you laid it out. there. Again, we've talked about there's three big teams in the Big Ten, aside from the ones that are coming over. And it's those three teams and having them come to Seattle and back to back to back years. Yeah, I don't know if they did that with like, I, I mean, I haven't really paid attention. Oregon gets Ohio State in 24. They play Ohio State all the time too. Wisconsin in 25 is their biggest non-conference. Michigan 26 and 27 Ohio State again. So Penn State doesn't go there for a while. Uh, not until 2028. Because we plan on recruiting in Pennsylvania. Or 2020. Now. They're also 2027, I should say. Ohio We're State coming there. State. We are coming for you, Pennsylvania. That's our recruiting base now. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, no, I, I was so stoked about seeing it. And you do look at the schedule and you're like, this ain't scary, right? Anybody who is scared of the Big Ten is doing it wrong. There are a few teams that are scary, but wait, was, let me pull up. The, do you have the full schedule on here? I wanted to look sure. at that again. Uh, 2027, Nebraska and Michigan State are the marquee games from from uh, a home perspective. So not so, not but, quite as big as the top three, but you know the next level down. Can you run through the 24 schedule again, home and road? Sure. So 2024, the Huskies at home will be playing Michigan Northwest. No, that must be yeah. But I thought, yeah, Michigan, Northwestern, UCLA, and USC at home. They will go to Indiana, Iowa, Oregon, Penn State, and Rutgers. In, notably, Oregon, you know, historically, Washington State has been the swing school in terms of whether the Huskies play five at home or four at home. Now, obviously, it's going to be Oregon as their traditional rival. That is, those are some pretty hard games. Not gonna lie, but there are also quite a, quite a few easy games in there. I mean, it's basically a lot of them are Pac-12 teams. The scariest games on the schedule for next year: it's Penn State, Michigan, and then it is USC, Oregon, right? So yeah. it, it's it's a little bit more than you would have had in the Pac-12. But the reality of these super conferences is that you're gonna play harder teams. When the conference only takes good teams, you're gonna be playing harder teams all of a sudden. That so, is the idea of it. But the threshold to make the playoff when it's an 18 playoff, it's going to be eight, right? Uh, 
Yep. When it's an eight-team playoff, is not quite as strict. You need to be good against those teams, but you don't have to be perfect. Right. There's a little more margin for error than there there has been historically. So, but it'll be fun. Like I said, the first time that Michigan is here, you know, in the way that we are excited about this game that we're about to play on Saturday, it's going to be exciting having Michigan and Seattle. It's going to be a thing where it no, is a it's moment. 12 teams, not, not eight. It's 12 teams starting in 2000. It's going to, going to a 12 team playoff. Yeah. So, I mean, there's margin for error within, within those games. It's not like you lose one. Like there's, they're going to be two and three lost teams that are making that playoff. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it is, it's looking more and more like the NFL, which is good and bad, but the reality is we really like the NFL. It is true. It's very popular. All right. Some injury news. Uh, Ryan Grubb said that, uh, both Jalen McMillan and Rome and Dudze should be good to go. Uh, obviously good news here. That's shocking, but, uh, good news nonetheless on the receivers. Yes, I agree. The fact that we even have to think about Roma Dunze is frustrating, but yes, uh, having Jalen back and having the full host of wide receivers is going to be freaking huge here. Yep. Uh, UW and Oregon come in number two and number three in FPI efficiency based strictly oh on this season's results. <laughs> Lord. Like, this is a fucking showdown. I the Huskies are. The Huskies are first and Oregon is third in offensive FPI efficiency. The Ducks have an edge on defense, 13th to 23rd, but their special teams rank just 98th, where UW, after that uh, punt return for a touchdown by Roma Dunze, is 53rd. Oregon played close at Texas Tech in a 38-30 win, but have won their other five games by at least 36 points. Oh, my God. Including, or I guess it's other four games, I think, including identical 42 to six finals in both Pac 12 games against Colorado and at Stanford. Uh, Oregon leads FCS with 7.1 yards per carry, 0.9 more than anyone else. Just two teams since 2000 have topped seven yards per attempt Nevada in 2009 with Colin Kaepernick at QB, and Georgia Southern in 2014, led by Willie Fritz. And there we go. Back Matt Breda. Wow, Matt Breda? Yeah. How about okay. that? So I thought that was fun. Uh, Bucky Irving leads the team with 393 yards, averaging 7.9 per carry. But Jordan James, who's averaging 8.7 yards per carry and has a team-high seven touchdowns, has been more effective both in terms of EPA per play and success rate. Uh, Bonix 13th in QBR thus far down from fourth last year, largely because he's running less as well as the strength of schedule. Certainly his passing has been on point. Nix has completed 80% of his passes, tops in FCS for 9.0 yards per attempt, and has 15 touchdowns to just one interception thus far. Troy Franklin leads the team with 32 catches for 535 yards and seven touchdowns. Nix's adoptive brother, Tez Johnson, a transfer from Troy, has caught all 15 of his targets for 13.5 yards per target and three touchdowns, but was not targeted against Stanford. Uh, on the defensive side, five players, Oregon players have at least two sacks this season. They have only allowed at least 160 passing yards in the Texas Tech game and are holding Pac-12 opponents under two yards per carry. Uh, in terms of pass, overall pass defense, only Georgia allowing fewer yards per pass attempt. Yikes. But strangely, Oregon hasn't forced a turnover in two conference wins. So that's going to be a showdown. 
I so I'm looking at the game against Texas Tech. That's what I want to focus in on, right? Because there's a reality. This Oregon is crushing teams. They are extraordinarily scary. But has Oregon played anybody yet this year? Have they played an actual difficult opponent? And and I I can see it with Colorado. I'm not not still not quite convinced about Colorado. But this game, 38-30 against Texas Tech, and needing that 20-3 fourth quarter to beat them, I was kind of like, how did this happen in Texas this game? Texas Tech, 27th in FPI. Texas Tech is not a bad team. I mean, that loss to Wyoming all of a sudden looks pretty good, right? Wyoming looks like a pretty solid team with their only loss coming against Texas. Uh, but that playing a game like that is definitely different than almost any game that UW has played this year. And where does Michigan State rank in? FPI is Texas Tech better than any team that UW has played. Uh, yes. Michigan, Michigan State's State not, not even listed. 60th. Arizona's 47th. Okay, so Texas so. Tech is definitely a better team. Cal 46 is actually the best. But the Huskies have dominated basically every game they played. I even include that Arizona game. If we're being honest with ourselves, if we're being truly honest with ourselves, that game was never close. And the Huskies probably should have won it by three touchdowns and ended up winning it by a lot less. There were penalties. There was a fumble in the goal line. Like, there was a last-second touchdown. There was a 21-point victory that somehow was by seven points, statistically. I mean, the strange thing about, uh, by the way, the Texas Tech game was a uh, revenge game for Tyler Shuck, the uh, former Oregon quarterback who's now a fifth-year senior at Texas Tech. Uh, They forced four turnovers in that game and still kind of barely won. It's when you Not look really at the run game it. in particular, Bucky Irvin, 11 for 38, Jordan James, four for eight, Noah Whittington, seven for 21. Look, maybe somehow Texas Tech has a really good run defense. I would just be so shocked if that was the case. Tyler Shook going for 23 carries for 101 yards uh, with a 58 yard scramble. But like, there's something to it to this game that I think maybe, maybe if you wanted a, a ray of hope for UW against this Oregon offense in particular, that you could look to this game. There's also a reality that I just don't believe that Oregon's going to stop the UW offense. Even if they've been playing fairly well defensively, that you could scheme it up. UW is so good against playing at any scheme and finding players open in the way that Arizona, you could play those seven DBs, right? But if you do that, Michael Penix is going to find players underneath. The turnovers are a question, I suppose, but UW has not been particularly turnover prone. I, I I just UW is going to score. There's no doubt in my mind that UW is going to score. And it is, can they stop Oregon two times, three times? Can they force some errors? This is going to be one of those games that if every time anybody, like if Oregon punts, we are going to feel like it is a win. Correct. It is going to be a huge, huge win if that yeah. happens. And every time that UW punts, we are going to be fucking terrified. So this this is going to be one of those games where every single possession, UW more or less has to try expect to score a touchdown. They have to play aggressive in this game. Any close fourth downs, I think Kalen DeBoer has been very good at this. Any close fourth downs, they have to be going for them. They can't be kicking field goals. You have to assume that every single time Oregon touches the ball, they're going to score and they're going to score quick. So if it comes down to a couple of key plays, can UW make a turnover? Can UW or either side, can there be a turnover early on that can swing the game, get it within a couple of touchdowns or whatever? That's going to be a huge moment. 
I think ultimately it's going to be it's just it's it's going to be offense on offense and it's going to come down to a couple of plays and I think those couple of plays hopefully will be in UW's favor. I have no idea. I think that UW is I I think Oregon is the other best team in the Pac-12. And I think there is an argument that being the best team in the Pac-12 might mean that you're the best team in the country. So I th- Everybody looks weak. The only teams in the country that don't look particularly weak so far this year are going to be playing in Seattle on Saturday. There's almost no other team that hasn't been seriously tested. I mean, the number one team in FBI efficiency is Michigan. Have they been seriously tested? I guess like Michigan. No, Michigan's the other one. Michigan is the other team. If, if you're going to say, if you want to say that, that there's teams that haven't been tested this year and they're all going to be in the Big Ten next year. Yes. Then I could buy that. No, I forgot about Michigan. But but when you go through it, Georgia's had some close games. Bama's lost. Texas lost. Oklahoma, I mean, should have lost to Texas last weekend. Like Number those four in that... FBI efficiency is Oklahoma, which is, Oklahoma's obviously is very good, good, but certainly has been tested because they, they played their version of this game last week. Yes. And that's what it came down to. It was literally down to... I told you when it happened. This this happens in football all the time, and I hope that Kalen DeBoer does not respond that way. The second that Texas lined up to kick that field goal, the game was over. And they they should have expected... Steve Sarkeesian had no reason to expect his defense to stop the, or, the Oklahoma offense, but assumed that it would happen. They kicked the field goal, they celebrated like they won, and then they lost. And that's the kind of moment that we hope doesn't happen at UW. We hope that Kalen DeBoer is so aggressive throughout this game and make sure that they are scoring every single chance that they can. It cannot be field goals. It cannot be settling and saying, oh, there's a minute 30. Oregon can't score during this time period. Oregon will score during that time period. This is straight up like this is Buffalo Bills, Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC championship game level. That's what we should assume, that these teams are going to score as fast as humanly possible. So there there can't be a moment where UW is letting up in any way. And we hope... That it's not 50% Oregon fans on Saturday. It's not going to be 50%. Or UW fans are excited. There is there is a fan base building. All it took all it took was 30 years after winning a national championship, joining the Big Ten, and a handful of exciting years. People are more excited about UW than they've been at any point during the Chris Peterson era. You think so? Oh, I absolutely think so. That game that we saw, that shit against Cal was special. That was never, ever the case. If if that would have been that 2016 team, it would have Again, been half full. Oh, oh, in terms of the fan base? Yeah, I guess yes, that's not, fair. Not, not the game on the field. Obviously, the 2016 team was very good. But, like, fan base-wise, people are more excited. It's sort of, it's one of those things that it takes a while. It takes a while for people to get excited about things. And it also takes a special player. And no offense to Jake Browning, Jake Browning didn't inspire what Michael Penix inspires. Michael Penix There wasn't is, a Heisman campaign. It, he... I, I don't know where he's at as far as favorites for the Heisman right now. I think it probably fluctuates rapidly week to week. But if the they way, win, he's going to be We didn't mention Jake Browning has been one play away, one, one the calf going the wrong direction away all season from playing for the Cincinnati Bengals, who so, I mean, only have quarterbacks named, on Sunday. Only have quarterbacks with the initials JB. But you you understand what I'm saying? Like that, the Husky fan base has shown up in a way that I don't think they have in my entire lifetime of going to Husky games. All right. Well, let's see it on Saturday. It, is it going to, obviously it's going to be a lot of Oregon fans. That's not a doubt, but it's not going to be 50% Oregon fans. 
And I think there is a little, there's a teensy bit of pride around UW. Game day is coming here. The team is good. This is the most important game. This is the most important regular season game that UW has played since 1991. Uh, Penix is the leader at Caesar's Sportsbook at plus 220 to win the Heisman. Really? Bo Nix is third at plus 420. It's Caleb Williams number two. He is. Wow, the Pac-12. Oh my <laughs> God. Just, just quite a moment. Just quite a moment I, for the Pac-12. After seeing USC a couple of weeks in a row, I, I just, USC is obviously good, but I think USC is a step below both of these teams. I think, again, I think whoever wins this game is easily the best team in the Pac-12. Maybe they don't sweep the Pac-12, but uh, I think they are easily, easily the best Easily is team. too strong. Especially if UW has to go at USC. Uh, there was easily ex- the best team through this point. Yes. There was an extended period of no scoring in last year's game. Uh, nearly a full quarter of game time went by between Oregon scoring the go-ahead touchdown late in the third and then extending their lead to seven oh, with 3.54 left before the Taj Davis 62-yard touchdown and then followed by the Husky stop and Peyton Henry's 43-yard game-winning field goal. I'm t- I'm telling you right now, that victory last year, as far as ranking maybe just football games, my favorite football games that I have ever watched. It's like, honestly, just like the elation of the fail Mary game. I'm not going to lie. Being there, because we didn't have the same shit that people had on TV. It was just like, we just got a Hail Mary and won. That, the tip, obviously. The comeback against Green Bay. The other that, that one. Game. The, but it's just like one of those moments where like you have this tension that is so built up in your chest. And then you just can release it and just breathe for a second. And for UW football, there's literally no no comparable to it. There's no game that I've cared about more. You know, beating beating Oregon 70-21 was great. That shit ain't fun, though. Like, it's fun to crush it, them. But it, was, it was very fun. But it's not the same. You oh, you didn't need saying? to see the darkness in that game. Because you know what I saw the darkness? The previous 12 years that Oregon won. No, that. but that's it. We are still in that era. Oregon still can kind of claim that they own UW. For sure. And this is the game. This is the fucking game right here on Saturday that UW has never won. We have never done it against Oregon, have we? What do you mean? When they were this good? We have never beaten an Oregon team except for last year where the two teams were probably equally as good. That was it. That was the first win, and you just hope that that is the future of what's to come. If UW wins this game, I am going to be riding high. Again, I let out such a guttural grunt when UW got that stop against Oregon, right? The fourth down that they went for it. It was like, there was such like pure emotion that came out because it's so different than any NFL game, right? There's something about it being Oregon. You know, like that's why this shit is protected. That's why we're going to the Big Ten because playing Oregon matters. It is deep. It is deep down. There's no like, oh, but I actually kind of like them. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no like, oh, there's mutual respect there. It is like, I fucking hate Oregon, right? Deep to my core. And being able to play this game against this team with this atmosphere, I'm so excited about it. I'm just happy that everybody made it here undefeated. Game day is coming to town. We're going to be there. There's going to be a goddamn atmosphere at Husky Stadium in a way that I'm telling you, this is it. I There's no game. 
again, you talked about Miami or whatever. There have been big games in that time period at Husky Stadium. This is number one. Yeah. If the Huskies win this, they're going to be in the top four in in all of college football. They will be the prohibitive favorites in the Pac-12 at that point and a favorite to be representing the Pac-12 in the college football playoff. And a year that they can win this shit, they can fucking do this. You know what I mean? This isn't like 2016. We knew. We knew deep down that team couldn't beat Alabama. You know what I mean? There was no doubt. In our, we were just like, well, maybe. But like, it was no one, so No one's clear. making bring on Bama signs this year because there is no equivalent to Bama in 2016. I mean, honestly, like you said, Michigan might be... Michigan is the only team that has been completely untested. You watch Ohio State and you're like, Ohio State's fine. Ohio State's good. Anyway, I want you to share what you shared earlier about uh, baby fantasy genius, how he's feeling about this game. <laughs> he said he is pitching level nervous about this game. And I will tell you, he's very nervous when he pitches. So I it's, it is funny that he was thinking that on a Monday. He said that I was like, I'm, I haven't quite gotten there yet. Like I it'll be tense for me, you know? Like, I just hope I want it to be a good atmosphere. Going to game day will be fun. I hope that it's chill. I don't want there to be any sort of like tension between the fans. I just hate that shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. ultimately, like, I, I hate Oregon in such a visceral way. But like, the people who go to Oregon are fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> if I met somebody who went to Oregon, I'd be like, like, it's a normal thing. It's like, as a football entity, as a sports team, I hate Oregon gutterly. The people on a personal level, I have, I'm sure that. I don't think I know anybody who went to Oregon, but you don't spend as much time in Portland as I do. I know, I know many people who went to Oregon. And obviously great people go to Oregon as the school, right? I think it's a fine college, but there's something about it as a football team that they just crushed us. They crushed us for so long and they celebrated the fuck out of it, right? They loved every second that they crushed us. So ha having this opportunity, again, that's that's all I care about. Because for me, when I think about it and I walk in and there's like tension in the crowd, I don't like that shit at all. You know what no. I mean? I want there to be tension on, presented toward the football field. Like I know that there will be like little skirmishes in the crowd. And I like where we are because we're generally pretty far removed from everything. But like we could be in the back. But I want that tension to be like when I'm at home, when I'm watching the game on TV. And it's just like every moment you are riding on and you're like, we need this. We need this moment. So that that's what I'm hoping for is that the atmosphere is good. I do think that generally speaking, like the UW and Oregon fans, I think get along mostly fine. Right. But that's optimistic. I, I do think there will we've, be we've a done different it a lot of times. I think there will be a different spirit of, and this, this term is chosen intentionally, collegiality now that we are brothers in arms in the Big Ten. I don't think it's going to completely change things, but I think there is a little element of that this year in particular. Just like, I don't know, it's the opposite of Utah fans handing, me, handing us beers at, at uh, Spartan Stadium. <laughs> Maybe there'll be a third, but there'll be Oregon State fans <laughs> handing, you, <laughs> handing us beers. The enemy, is my, enemy is my friend. Uh, percentage chances of victory. I think it is a 50-50 chance. It is exactly even. I'm more optimistic than you on this one. I'm going 52%. There we go. I, I just, I would never be so confident as to say that the Huskies had a chance to beat Oregon. We've seen it over and over and over again. If there was one time that I felt maybe, I mean, there were times, obviously, that Oregon was down against this Oregon team. 
I would never be never be so confident. And I could picture it in my head. I I just they're going to score and it's going to be so frustrating, right? Oregon is going to score a lot and it's going to be frustrating every time and it's going to happen right in front of us and we're going to stand there with our arms folded. You know what I mean? And yep. we just have to hope that the Huskies bounce back because that's how this game is going to go. Like I and that's how last year went. Last year was such a fun and tense game and having that moment at the end to for the Huskies to have won it, to have finally beaten a really good Oregon team is something special. This is out of respect also, I will say, to Oregon. Like, they've been good enough that winning these games matters. You know what I mean? Of I'm not course. like, wow, every game against Wazoo is a tense game because we've kind of owned Wazoo. So I mean, the, the other thing to remember is to lo- think back to the last time that the Oregon Ducks came to Husky Stadium with Mario Cristobal as their head coach in the final game for Jimmy Lake. Oh my God, that was when it all imploded. Yeah, it was. That was less than two years ago. It was November 6th, 2021. Think about how long ago that particular moment seemed. Kaylin DeBoer was just a glimmer in our eye. <laughs> we we no, didn't that even know who Michael wild. Penix Jr. was. We knew Kaylin DeBoer I thanks knew to the Hater Watch. Was. I suppose we we knew who he was, but didn't really know him. Not super well. I mean, he was like kind of randomly one of the quarterbacks, so I feel like I knew the most for some reason. Because of the Ohio State game in 2020? I guess so. I, I don't know why. It might have even been from college football video game, um, <clears throat> which I am still updating the rosters on <laughs> since <There's> 2014. <laughs> just, to be, just to be clear here. Kevin DeBoer has never lost to Oregon. That's actually so true. On that note, I, I'm very excited for Saturday. This is, this is, the football game obviously there'll be more after this but ultimately probably for our entire 2023 year like this is this is the football game it's the most important husky game in three decades and i can't freaking wait to be there to be tense to follow it along to see if michael Penix jr deserves that opportunity to be number one in heisman uh odds right now and if he can actually carry that through to be there at game day to be excited to be there with guest picker who do you think it's going to be? Do you have any guess? Macklemore? Warren Moon? Okay. We'll keep uh-huh. throwing stuff out. Somebody has to. I feel like it's going to be Macklemore. I don't know. Joel McHale last time. Do you remember who it was the previous time? I want to say it was Hope Solo. That, that sounds case? right. Yeah, I think that sounds right. Maybe it'll be Megan Rapino this year. Um, what day is their game? Their game's on Sunday, right? Yes, I, I think she'll be in Chicago at that point. Uh, to be there with guest picker Macklemore, to see Lee Corso putting that Husky head on, the the Harry the Husky uh, mascot on, it's going to be such an incredible moment. So I'm just excited for it. I'm excited for Saturday. I can't freaking wait. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Oh, the last time it, it was Oregon, Washington, it was Hope Solo and Warren Moon. So I guess, I guess now. Hope Solo and Warren Moon? Yeah. They had both do it? They had both of them. Two guest pickers? Weird. Yeah.